Good morning. You are welcome here on the second Sunday of Advent. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. As we continue in this Advent season, we gather to give thanks for God's gracious gift. God in flesh comes as the image of the invisible Father. Israel's waiting for the promised one is not a time to celebrate, but a time of sorrow and mourning. Rebellion has led to exile, captivity, oppression, and pain. But God has promised that the day is coming when his people will sing and dance, for the coming of God will mean joy for his people in the whole world. 
On the second Sunday of Advent, we light the candle in a spirit of joy because we know that God's presence is the reason to celebrate who he is and the fulfillment of all he has done through the birth of his son. Dear God, on this second Sunday of Advent, let this light shine brightly as the days grow shorter so that we will be ready for your face to shine upon us at Christmas. In the Savior's name we pray, amen. Please stand as we continue in worship together. So this is how it was, a silent night like any other. Would heaven send the one, the one that we would call our Savior? And redemption began in a stable in Bethlehem. All of the angels lifted up their voices, filled the night with hallelujah. God is with us now. Everyone come and join the heavenly chorus. Our Savior King is here before us. All to hear the sound. The song truly God, wrapped up in a tattered blanket. Love was finally here, sleeping while the world
prophets centuries old. The birth of Messiah has been long foretold that unto you Like a bride waiting for 
Father, we've come again today to join our hearts, our minds, to worship you because you are worthy of all of our praise. We thank you for being present with us. We thank you for speaking into our lives, for changing us and changing this world. We pray that our worship would bring honor and glory to you as we open our hearts to you. And We ask this through Christ. Amen. We encourage you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here in worship today.
Just one quick thing, actually two quick things to remind you about. One is the uh, insert in your bulletin mentions family night this Wednesday. We're going to go caroling and uh, then uh, we'll be back to the church for some uh, cocoa and cookies. And um, it says here, just make sure you drink, uh, dress warm and uh, bring a flashlight if you have that. And they're going to have some glow sticks as well. So we'll have a, a good time together. A lot of people that we've arranged to go to their place to go caroling. So we hope you'll... Be a part of this on Wednesday evening. Also today we're collecting uh, the jars for Refugee Project, Matthew 820 Initiative. If you brought your jars, you can just dump them in the baskets there. There's one up here. If you forgot your jar, just bring it next week or bring it by the office. We'll get that together. And also make sure you take a new booklet. We're going to do one more quarter of this. So uh, take a booklet with you and we hope that that uh, helps all of us to be a little bit more aware, a little bit more uh, cognizant of the needs of many in our world today. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has given to us.
We spend a few moments uh, praying together. I invite you to come to the altar reel if you'd like to offer your prayers. I do want to uh, just mention a couple of uh, items. Uh, of course, we want to pray for refugees and the, the uh, funds that we've collected, that God would use those in ways bigger than what we might imagine. And continue praying for refugees as well as other needs of the world. Also, a couple of uh, people we want to pray for in the hospital, uh, Carol Stonemetz, who had surgery earlier this week, and Daryl Stevenson, who had emergency heart surgery yesterday. And we want to uh, remember them in our prayers as well as others. So if you'd like to use the altar rail as we pray, please come and join me. Father, we thank you for um, this time of year when we are reminded that you are with us, that you have come among us in order to redeem us and to, uh, to put us in relationship with you, to transform us in our world. We thank you. Father, this morning as we gather, there are all kinds of things in our hearts and our minds. We pray for all who are grieving today, and we think especially of Blanche Weaver's family. And we ask that you would comfort them in their grief and their loss. And for all who are grieving today, particularly in this holiday time. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray for your healing grace upon Daryl Stevenson, Carol Stonemetz, Ben King, David Hartley, Mildred Berry, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Laurel Buker, Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Bevrett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Crickler, and others. We pray, Father, that your grace would be evident in your healing power in each one. Father, we thank you for your presence in our nation and in our world. We continue to pray for healing in our nation of all the ways in which we are divided from one another and and, and act violently and in conflict toward each other. We pray, Father, for your grace upon our world, and we, we ask, Father, that you will, you will especially be near those who are refugees. We, we ache for people who have been displaced from their homes and have fled in fear. Some of them are in places where, quite frankly, it's not that much better. We pray, Father, that you will bring peace and refuge and safety and that situations would be such that your spirit brings an end to conflicts and wars and oppression and violence that refugees can return to their homes and to their lives. We pray, Father, you will take our small gifts that we collect today and use them in ways that we couldn't imagine because of your grace. 
Father, we pray for your work around the world, and we are so grateful for the ministry of, of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Just about to embark on 75 years of translating the scriptures makes such a difference in people understanding the gospel in their own, not only in their own language, but just in their own mindset and heart language. We pray, Father, that the work will continue and that you will give grace and strength and wisdom to making the very best translations possible and reaching more and more people. We thank you for the, the people connected to us who are in this ministry, and we pray you continue to bless them. We pray for your people around the world who face great difficulties because of their faith. We thank you for the story we've read from East Africa of, of these cousins who have come to faith in you through difficult circumstances. And we pray that they will continue to know your grace in their lives and courage to stand tall for you and to be a presence of love and grace, particularly to those who oppose them. Father, we, we pray for uh, our, not only the, the world, but the world right here around us and the needs that right around us. We thank you for the ministry of your church in our county and beyond. And today we pray for the Brookside Wesleyan Church in Wellsville, Pastor Robin George. Pour out your grace upon this congregation in their worship today, in their lives throughout the week. May they know the blessing of your spirit upon them. And may they be united in love for you and for one another, that they may be a presence of love for others. Lord, we thank you for uh, your grace in our lives and in this world. We pray that you will help us to continue to, to be uh, agents of love and mercy and grace in a world that desperately needs you. Be glorified in our worship, in our prayers, in all that we are and all that we do. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, 
he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing together. And at this time, children may be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church.
Please be seated. probably have a, a favorite Christmas song. Maybe you have a number of them. You know, in a couple of weeks, uh, Sunday night, the 18th, we're going to get together and sing everyone's favorite Christmas carols. It's, it's one of the, my favorite services that we have when we gather together to do that. But uh, there are some songs that maybe, uh, maybe some of your favorite songs aren't the ones that we sing in church. Uh, they're fun songs. They're uh, you know, the songs that may give you a sense of joy in the holiday season and all of that. And, and you know, they're, they're just, just songs that, that we like. Now, there's a song that struck me particularly um, probably more than 20 years ago. And uh, it's written by David Foster and Linda Thompson Jenner. And there's something about this song that... that um, I don't know, it just kind of grabbed my heart. You know, some of the songs we like are upbeat and joyous, and some of the songs that we like are a little bit more contemplative. And this is one of those songs that's, that's like that. And it, it, um, it, it goes like this. Do you remember me? I sat upon your knee. I wrote to you childhood fantasies. Well, I'm all grown up now. I still need help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart still can dream. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. Not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives torn apart. Their wars would never start. And time would heal all hearts. And everyone would have a friend. And right would always win. And love would never end. This is my grown-up Christmas list. The first time I heard that song, it made me cry. And every time I hear it after that, it brings emotions to me. Because there is something in that song that strikes in the heart of what we wish the world would be. No more lives torn apart. No more wars. Hearts would be healed. That people would have friends. I mean, there is something about that, that message, that idea, that, that not just Christians, but the whole world, much of the world embraces. We see it all the time. And I think the reason for that is because God put that desire into our hearts. God created us as people who were intended to know justice and relationship. 
He created us to be people, not to fight with each other, not to start wars, not to take advantage of one another, manipulate one another, but, but to care for each other. And when sin entered the world, it completely destroyed what God intended for his creation. That kind of, of love and relationship and unity, friendship, joy. And ever since then, we have been wrestling as human beings to get back to that, and we haven't, we haven't come close. And that's why Jesus comes. And what we see, we, to me, that's what we see in this image that we get in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 paints a picture for us of the world that meets that yearning in the human heart for something more than what we experience right now in this world. When you look at this, this image of Isaiah 11, this is an image that will come to us on that day, he says. On the day when, when God ushers in the, the kingdom in all of its fullness, when Jesus reappears, this is what that day is going to look like. And interestingly enough, it begins, I think, in a place where we might not suspect. It begins with creation. You look at beginning in uh, verse 6. It says, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. A little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. A little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. What an awesome picture of creation. Everything that is at enmity together now will be at peace. You read through this list, and these are all what we call natural enemies of each other. And they will no longer be enemies of each other. There will be safety and security no longer uh, are the animals or humans and animals attacking each other. There will be peace. Now, when I read this, it surprises me that, he, that Isaiah starts with creation. But I think it tells us something that, about how we tend to view God's world. And, and particularly, how we tend to view the world to come. I think it has been ingrained in us that the world to come is a place somewhere out there. We think of heaven as someplace out there that we're going to escape to. But when you read images like this all throughout Scripture, we find that it's really a new heaven, a restored heaven, a restored earth. And it begins with creation. And it strikes me that maybe one of the reasons why creation is mentioned first is because until creation is right, nothing else can be right. Until creation is made right, there is going to be chaos, there's going to be uncertainty, there's going to be pain. But when creation is made right, it paves the way for all the other relationships and all the other issues and problems to be made right with it. And it also tells us that God cares deeply about all that he has made. 
I think sometimes we have a perspective that creation is something that we can take, we can take it or leave it. We can do whatever we want with it because we're more important than anything else in creation. And while human beings are valuable to God, no doubt about that, so is all of God that God has created. God hasn't created this world so that uh, to be destroyed, he's created this world to be restored. And I think it's important to see that in the image of what the world is going to be. But he goes on and he talks in verse 10 about how not only is creation restored, but all the nations are restored. It says, in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him. The land where he lives will be a glorious place. You get again this image, same thing we saw in Isaiah 2, of all the nations coming to God's mountain. All the nations streaming to God. Sometimes I think we, we think that God is primarily concerned about the people who follow him. Concerned about just a small group of people. But the reality is God is interested in every single person in the world. Every single person in the world is valuable to God. No more or no less. It doesn't matter nationality, race, gender, any other ways in which we divide ourselves among each other. In God's kingdom, everyone has value. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. Now, not everyone takes advantage of that. Some people reject God. Some people turn away from God. But it's not because God doesn't want them. God wants all people. And when all the nations are coming to him, there is a sense in that of equality and unity. And I get this picture that on that day, you get the sense that, that all of a sudden people's eyes will be open to who God is. And when they see who God truly is, they will want him. I think we miss that. I think so often we, we get so wrapped up in people who are like us, people who think like us, people who, who, are, who resonate with us, that we have a tendency, maybe not consciously, but at least subconsciously, to look at other people as less important, less valuable. One of the ways that I think we do that is is that we, we look at people who are different from us and we aren't really sure they have anything to teach us. And one of the signs, I know for myself, one of the signs that, that, that my heart is not in the right place is when I, when I have a perspective of other people and all of a sudden I realize that I don't really value their opinion. I don't really value anything that they might bring to our relationship or to who I am as a person or to who we are as people. And the conviction of the Spirit comes upon me. Because it sends a message that they are less valuable. And in the kingdom, they're not. And then you come to the last section here. And he talks about what's going to happen with Judah and Israel. These two nations that at one point were one. And then were divided. And for hundreds of years have been divided and separated. And have been enemies of one another. After the civil war. And he says that in that day. 
Judah and Israel will come together. They will be reunited. Now, that may be the biggest miracle in the whole thing here. When you read the New Testament, you, 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 have the, you, know, you see the sense of how the Jews feel about Samaritans. And Samaritans are the people of the northern kingdom, the people of Israel who were, many of them, displaced by the Assyrians when they conquered the ancient Near East. And the Assyrian strategy was they would go in and conquer a nation. They would take two-thirds of the people out and spread them around the, the rest of the nations they conquered. And then they would take people from all those other nations and implant them into the place they had conquered. So then what ended up happening is the people would, uh, would become a mixed race. And they had different languages, different customs. And they were, it was very unlikely that they would bond together to form an attack against the Assyrians. But you as a ruthless strategy. And the Samaritan people of the New Testament, are those, that's those people in Israel. And they are a mixed race of people. And of course, to the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah, they weren't really Israelites anymore. And they've been fighting with each other and against one another and hating one another. And Isaiah says the day is coming when all of that will end and they will be reconciled. And they will be united. What an amazing image when you think of all the ways, again, in which we separate ourselves from each other and divide ourselves from each other. We are continually looking. In fact, someone said to me recently, we tend to define ourselves by who we're against. We unite ourselves based on who we're against. And we talk in the, in the church about the kingdom uh, as, and to look at people who are in and people who are out. And we're always making those value judgments. And often it becomes not just a, a judgment of fact, it becomes a judgment of opinion. And we divide ourselves and we are continually thinking about how we are different from other people and we're better than other people. And in the kingdom, all of that will be dissolved because we will know God and God will be the focus, not us. All the ways in which we divide ourselves will be ended because our focus will be on, on Jesus. And that's all that will matter. It's Jesus. But here's the thing about what Isaiah says. Verses 6 and following are all about an, or an image of that day of restoration. That day when the kingdom is established and everything is put to right. But verses 1 to 5 tell us how that happens. And in verses 1 to 5, he says, the shoot will come up out of the branch of Jesse, the root of Jesse, the stump. The shoot will come up, and that will, that will be what changes things. And this is a word about the Messiah. This is a word about the one to come who is going to bring about the kingdom as God intended it. He is going to restore the kingdom as God intended it to be. And the thing that, that Isaiah makes clear here in, as he talks about this shoot that's coming up, is that the thing that separates him from everyone else is that the Spirit rests on him. This is an act of God. The Spirit rests on him, and because the Spirit rests on him, he has knowledge and wisdom and strength and might to do what God desires him to do and to be the, the Savior, to be the restorer, to be the, 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 the presence of God in a unique way 
to bring about the restoration of the world that human beings have been trying to do and failing miserably for centuries. This one to come makes the difference because the Spirit rests on him. And because the Spirit rests on him, he says in verse 3 that he delights in the fear of the Lord. One translation says he delights in obeying the Lord. It might be the most profound thing that's said in this whole passage. Because when we think of obedience, we tend to think of, I have to do something that I don't really want to do. Obedience is typically not a positive word for us. It's typically a negative word. You know, we, because we, we, ha- we have to be told to obey because we don't want to obey. If we wanted to obey, we wouldn't have to be told to do it. We have to teach our children to obey because it doesn't come natural to them. And the human spirit is always thinking about rebellion. We're always acting in rebellious ways. And we have in our minds this sense that when we obey God, it's as if we are losing something inherently good in order to obey to do something inherently bad. And so we fight with God about obedience. But... This one to come, he delights in obedience. He delights in in the awe and fear of the Lord because he knows who God is. He knows that God is good and merciful and gracious and that anything God might ask anyone to do is always leading to our best interest. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be simple doesn't mean that it's not going to involve difficulty and some struggle and some suffering and some pain. But it does mean that obedience always leads us to the very best life. Obedience always leads us to to the presence of Christ, to relationship with God as we were created to experience. And God, so when God presents all of these various laws to Israel, they're not just arbitrary things. They're in their best interest. They're trying to help them understand who God is and draw them closer to God, who is the source of life and all that is good. And until we come to see God in that way, obedience will never be a delight for us. It will always be a battle and a struggle. And we will fight it because we don't know who God is. And the journey of, of really of the Christian life is, is opening our minds to let God show us who he is. And when we talk to people about, about Christ, what we really want to say to them is, this is who God is. Not worry about some kind of plan or or some kind of formula, but simply to say to people, we want you to know who God is. And God is in Christ. This is who God is. And this is what God wants to do. And, And this is God's plan and purpose for all that he has made. And for all of us who live in this world of pain and war and conflict and struggle and injustice, it's about restoration. He tells us, beginning in verse 3, he says, not only is he delight in obeying the Lord, but he will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. 
He will give justice to the poor, make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. That's how that translation has it. It's not so much the result of what Jesus does when he comes, as it is the the DNA of who Jesus is. The DNA of Jesus is to do justice and to do righteousness and to be truth. It is the essence of his character and his nature. It, it, that, because this is what God desires. This is what God is. He is about justice and he is about truth and he is about compassion and love. He's about righteousness. Sometimes I think we, when we talk about justice and righteousness, we, we sort of look at them as, as sort of the opposite sides of a coin. That justice is about sort of the, the, the social implications of the world. And righteousness is about more of the, the spiritual implications of the world. It's about moral truth. It's, it's, about, it's about doing the right things. And, and justice is about trying to make society a better place. And we may embrace both of them, but we, we look at them as if they're sort of part of a ball and a circle and, and they're divided down the middle and one half is, is about justice and one half is about righteousness. I don't think that's the right perspective. I, I, I think of it like this. I mean, I, it's like making a cake. I don't, I don't make a lot of cakes. I can. I mean, I can read a box as well as anybody else can. But... If you make a cake from scratch, you have dry ingredients and you have wet ingredients. What if you took the cake pan and you put the wet ingredients on one side and the dry ingredients on the other side and then you put that in the oven? I got to tell you, I don't think I want to eat that cake. But that's not what we do. We put those ingredients in a bowl and then we put a mixer in the bowl and we stir it up. And when you stir it up, when you get done stirring it, you can't tell the wet from the dry. It's all together. And that's the kind of cake we want to eat. And I think there is something of that when we talk about justice and righteousness. About the, the, the implications of the gospel for society and the implications of the gospel related to our sin. It's, it's all together. Because it's all the nature of God. God doesn't say, well, I'm concerned about justice here, but I'm concerned about righteousness here. They're together. They're the same thing. They're interwoven together. They are mixed together like the batter of a, for a cake. And to care about righteousness is to care about justice. And to care about justice is to care about righteousness. It is both together. It's the nature. It's the DNA of how God views this world and what God desires for this world, what God wants for us as human beings and for and to be his people in this world. It's together. And so when we start talking to people about who Jesus is, we talk to them about righteousness and justice because that's what Jesus comes to do. That's, who, that's the nature of who God is and that's what we want people to know. But here's the thing that I find intriguing about 
how Isaiah describes the coming of Christ. He talks about him coming as a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. That seems like an odd thing to say, an odd way of describing the coming of Christ. I mean, if you're going to talk about that type of a, of a, of a plant, I would think you'd want him to come like a tree. Right? I mean, a shoot is fragile. You can pull a shoot up out of the ground with your bare hands. We need a tree. You know, we want, we want him to come as a tree that people go, wow. I mean, you think about it. No one that I know of has ever planned their vacation to go visit the Green Shoot National Forest. Right? I mean, we don't go say, hey, let's go to Kansas because we want to get to the Green Shoots. No, where we go, we spend, we plan vacations and we go out, drive miles out of our way to go to the Sequoia National Forest or the Redwoods National Forest. Because these are impressive things. I have not been to see these trees, but when I look at a picture like that, it is astounding to me the immensity of a tree like that. Strong, powerful, awe inspiring. And quite frankly, if I were planning this whole thing that God is doing to restore the world the way he wanted it to, I would not send a shoot. I would send a tree. But God always does the unexpected. And there's something a little bit sneaky about a shoot compared to a tree. It's one of the things I love about the Christmas story. Everything's unexpected. I mean, when you start thinking about the events of the Christmas story, who would have guessed what human being would have planned to choose a couple that is as common as anybody you would find on the street? And who would have planned it that the mother of Jesus would be pregnant and not married? And who would have chosen a place like Bethlehem? And who would have chosen a stable, a manger? And who would have said, okay, who are we going to tell first? Let's tell the outcast shepherds first, the people nobody wants to listen to, the people that no one cares about. Let's tell them the story first. And who would have ever expected that the people that pagan astrologers would be more interested in this baby than the people who know the scriptures like the back of their hand. Unexpected ways of God. And it strikes me that as people of God who, as we just prayed a little bit ago, are asking God to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, And have heard his call to be agents of bringing restoration to this world. Of caring about righteousness and justice. Of wanting and caring about how creation is treated. Of caring about reconciliation. Of caring about helping the nations to know who God is. As people have been called with the privilege and the responsibility of being used by God to do that. My guess is that most of the time that's going to happen in unsuspecting ways, in daily life. Every so often, 
God puts his hand on someone's life and they change the world in monumental ways. There have been a few Desmond Tutus, Mother Teresa, Billy Grahams. But most of the time, God works through people like you and me. And he works through our everyday relationships. We see needs. And because of Christ in us, we want to do something to help a person in need. We want to show them Jesus. We want to love them, care for them, help them. And my guess is most of the time, we'll get to the end of the day and think we haven't done anything monumental at all. We've just been a presence, a voice. For the heart of God, so that people can see who God really is. We love this image that Isaiah presents, and it, it, it just blows my mind to think of what that day is going to be like. And in the midst of that vision, we hear God calling us to be so open to His Spirit that we become agents of restoration right where we are, with the people we are, in the places we are. And find that God can use us in ways that we might never dream possible. So in this Advent season, who might God lead you to be a presence for him? Where might God want you to be, to be a presence for him? Father, we thank you. for this amazing image that Isaiah paints for us. We pray that you will help us to be so open to the Spirit so open to the Spirit that we are a presence for you Helping people see who you are. Being agents of restoration. Through the grace of Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing. Tears are falling, hearts are breaking, how we need to hear from God. You've been promised, we've been waiting, welcome 
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.